0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm HRN's Communication Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're exploring the future of eating animals, and we're going beyond typical meat sources.
2: If you look at the length of human history, we've been eating insects a lot longer than we haven't been in the United States and Western Europe.
1: We're looking at unusual ways to purchase meat.
0: People are like, really? Why would I want to buy that out of a machine?
1: And we introduce you to Frank Reese, a poultry farmer whose traditional farming methods are featured in a new documentary.
0: I'm a fourth generation farmer in Kansas, and I focus basically all on standard bred poultry and have my whole life. He's kind of the last one standing with these rarefied breeds that are so important for if we're going to eat chicken and turkey into the future he's essential he's a national treasure
1: listen to meat and three this week to better understand the history and the future of meat available on apple Podcasts, stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts
3: Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and we are coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, June 27, 2018. This is the 182nd episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an amazing leader in our industry who focuses primarily on no-kid-hungry. And I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to be better. Think about ways you can do more to be a better person, better friend, better worker, better family member, better listener, or better part of the community. It's easy for us to get caught up in ourselves. So it's good to remember that there are many who are less fortunate, who we may be able to help with a little thought and effort. So let go of any me, me, me attitude, and instead think of how you or we can make a difference. Doing good feels good and actually feels better. That's my tip today. Now I'm really happy to have my guest in the studio with me. It is Jenny Dirksen. She is the National Director of Chef and Culinary Professional Relations at Share a Strength, No Kid Hungry. In her role, Jenny works across departments and platforms to contribute to overall fundraising goals, independently and collaboratively managing a robust pipeline of prosperity prospective chef supporters. She has been with Shara Strength since 2010, previously as co-national director and director of culinary events. And prior to that, she was at Union Square Hospitality. She's a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, as well as Tisch School of Arts, NYU in New York City. Welcome, Jenny.
2: Thank you. So glad to be here. Yeah.
3: Yes, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you. And i um, yeah, I, I just, I, 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 yeah, you're so impressive. Everything, and you have the biggest smile on your face whenever I see you, and it's just, it's always a joy. So, let's, um, let's start out with how you got into the industry, because you know, looking, I was looking at your longer bio, and I was like, you went to culinary school, and you cooked in these restaurants, and I, you had the, you had this sh-
2: restaurant background. I've had a string of very fortunate events uh, that got me to where I am. So I've always been interested in food. My mother cooked dinner every night, nothing wild, but home cooked dinner every night. It was important that we sat down together. I'm an only child. So it was just the three of us. Um, When my parents started making enough money to go out to eat, that was always like an all of us celebration. So just something I've really enjoyed. I feel like restaurants are something that became increasingly relevant to me throughout my life. Um, as you mentioned, I was at NYU. I had moved back in with my parents, not relishing the dorm life in Manhattan. And uh, my senior year, I was working at what was then Hay Day Market in Scarsdale, New York. I think it's now a Balducci's. Um, Bobby Flay came in and did a cooking demonstration. This was maybe right around when Bolo opened. Um, And so I wanted to go. I had been to Mesa. I was a vegetarian at the time, and I remember that vegetable salad tower they would do. Um, And so my mom and I went to his cooking demo. My mom, who can make friends with a wall, was outside (laughs) speaking with his assistant afterwards. And I came out and said, oh, I've always been interested in cooking, and I wondered if I should go to culinary school. And she said, go back inside and ask Bobby."
0: Okay, so I went inside
2: <laughs> and I gave him my spiel, and he said, "Well, don't go to culinary school until you cook." And I was like, "Right." And no one's going to hire me to cook until I go to culinary school. And he said, "I'll hire you. Here's my card. Call me tomorrow." So I called him the next morning, and he says, "Wow, no one actually calls. You must really want to do this. Come on down." <laughs> so I was a um, film studies major, not not production, but like history and theory at NYU, and I came and toured Mesa Grill. And he said, I will hire you, um, but you need to be trained first. So I'd like to ask you to, you know, stage, work for free downstairs in the prep room. So I moved all of my classes to the evening, and I was at Mesa Grill every morning at 7 a.m., boning out rabbit saddles and peeling roasted peppers and whatever it took. I did Friday mornings in pastry. There was a pastry cook that was pregnant, and we had that um, metal staircase of death spiraling down to the prep room. Uh, so to avoid her having to go up and down, I was helping in pastry. And then on New Year's Eve that year, my senior year of college, the nighttime, one of the nighttime pastry cooks quit during new year's eve service and so wayne harley brockman was the pastry chef mm-hmm. at the time and he called me and said want a job so i switched all my classes to am and i <laughs> plated desserts in the evening and it was really um, learning as i went um alfred stevens was one of the pastry cooks then he used to scoop out all my ice cream for me and a server had to teach me how to write in chocolate on a plate for a birthday plate um but it was an, a fabulous experience um, I did eventually cross back over into, onto the hotline at Mesa. And even then, in the mid-90s, we had an all-female crew two or three nights a week. So in a lot of ways, it was this incredibly empowering place to be. I firmly felt that Bobby had my back at all times. He was really interested in me developing my education. And when it was the right time for me to apply to the Culinary Institute, I did. And uh, that's where I was off to there. That is, I just love that story.
3: Like,
2: I had no idea. That's incredible. Yeah. So you then went to the CIA. So I went to the CIA. Um, you know, you have an externship sort of midway through the program. This was before there was uh-huh. a bachelor degree there, um, and I was in Hyde Park. I really lucked out that one of my sous chefs at Mesa had come from Vidalia, Jeff Bubin's restaurant in D.C. And her sous chef there was now the sous chef at the French Laundry, Eric Siebold, who now has um, kinship and métier in D.C. And I called Eric. They had had exactly one extern before, Richard Blaze. And I said, <laughs> I want to come out. Yeah, And he said, what do you want from your externship? And I said, better knife skills. And he said, pack your bags. So I did my externship at the French Laundry. This was the summer. They were opening Bouchon. Um, th- Thomas was writing his cookbook. His brother Joseph was out there for Bouchon. His dad was there. It was, it was a very exciting time in that kitchen. Um, and I was fortunate to be there and to be able to work in the garden and just plus the bounty of Napa in general. Wow. What an incredible experience.
3: So I'm thinking my background... It's a little similar because I went to... When I was after college, I was living in Chicago, and I decided to go to cooking school. And I went to a very small school in Chicago, not the CIA. But I had this, I want to cook, um, I want to work in restaurants. So I'm wondering... I, because I reached a point where I said, I didn't necessarily see myself in kitchens, but I always had a love for the industry, and I found my way into to doing PR. So when did you... When was there a point where you said, maybe, I don't want to be cooking? or And and how did you get connected with Danny
2: Meyer? <laughs> I still don't know if I don't want to be cooking. Okay. I think I still Good. Good to know. know. It's always out there as like the someday, right? The someday cafe. That's what we call it. Someday. I'll okay. do this thing. Um, after culinary school, I felt really drawn to cook um, at an Indian restaurant. I'd been to India during college. Loved the flavors. And tabla was brand spanking new. Mm -hmm. I I think I trailed there a few months after it opened. So I was cooking at Bread Bar and then eventually upstairs in the kitchen, which was more formal. um, And I hurt my back. I had terrible sciatica and I had a lot of problems standing up at my station. Mm -hmm. So I took a little time assisting Floyd Cardo's uh, just with anything, outside events, buyouts, whatever the items might be. And while I was doing that, Richard Corain, who is one of Danny's Mm -hmm. business partners, came to me and said, "Um, I'd like you to interview to be Danny's assistant. And I said, no, 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 that's okay. I'm good. And he said, maybe (laughs) you didn't hear me. (laughs) So I interviewed with Danny. And as you know, because you know him, just like one of the best human beings I've ever met. And I thought, who wouldn't want to spend some time working with this individual? Exactly. And wow. that's so, so you were then,
3: you were working with him, you stayed with USHD for, for a couple years. All in all, I was there
2: just over 11 years. Oh, more than I, a couple. <laughs> Excuse me. When I started in Danny's office, we were in the basement of Gramercy Tavern, um, which was a spectacularly fun place to be. Although I like to joke that my window looked out one ground, you know, one floor below street level. Um, but it was great being there. This, this was like the Tom and Claudia days of GT. Um, and then as we were, we, we doubled in size twice while I was there, um, largely due to the openings at the Museum of Modern Art. But I mean, I was there for Shake Shack. I was there for Blue Smoke and Jazz Standard, really exciting stuff. And so we eventually moved our office out. And also at that point, we really didn't have a full corporate office. Um, so during my time there, we, built out to a robust staff that really led growth for the many businesses they now own. I'm like,
3: I'm just kind of speechless because I didn't know, I I mean, I knew a little your background, but I didn't, I didn't know these, these details. So, so then, so you're with, so then what led you to
2: Share a Strength? So Danny's an incredibly um, philanthropic business owner, and it, it was really in working with him that I, I saw this place where restaurants could affect change in a community or people would rely on restaurants as a place to gather. I, Our office was still at Gramercy Tavern on September 11th, and we made the decision there just to open the doors and cook everything in the kitchen for anyone who needed it. And we had stories from Union Square Cafe, from Gramercy Tavern, of couples that were reunited at the bar at the restaurants, like both just coming in, really not sure where to go. So I, this very strong and compelling sense of community, I mean, just how you started, right? Better. Um, there's ways that we can all contribute and make everything better. Um, and so while I was I was Danny's assistant, and then as we built out this office, we sort of parceled out pieces of the job. And he said, what is it that you want to do? And I said, you know, there's this soft side to your PR, all the um, community boards that he sat on, the park boards, Madison Square Park, Union Square Park, the Convention and Visitors Bureau, NYC and company. He was on the tourism committee. I'm fascinated with this work. Is this something I can focus on? And so we established a department for community investment. I started philanthropy amongst the staff. We started a community council of volunteers. We went to New Orleans after Katrina to help scrub out Dookie Chase Restaurant. Uh, We were even in Deep Brooklyn just renovating some homes with Habitat for Humanity. But some of that great work. And during that time, I started volunteering for Share Our Strength's Taste of the Nation event, um, which has been going on some 30 some odd years. Danny's on the board for Share Our Strength, so it was definitely, you know, a connection. Um, And after some years of doing that, I had my first daughter, the recession in 2007 happened, Um, and so at USHG. I actually shifted focus and worked with a few colleagues to launch what became Hospitality Quotient, their sort of enlightened hospitality Mm -hmm. um, consulting company. Um, But I just felt strongly more and more pulled towards that nonprofit piece where restaurants connect with communities. Um, And so a conversation just sort of bubbled up with Share Our Strength, and I made the jump.
3: Yeah. Again, crossover, because I was a volunteer with Taste of the Nation, and- yeah, I, I've never worked for Danny, but I'm like to, <laughs> There's I'm, just, time. I'm <laughs> there I, yeah. I mean I'm just such a huge fan. And and yes, everything you the reasons why and that that's yeah, that's that's um a wonderful a story again, and time to take a break while I digest it all, and then we'll we'll come back and we'll talk more about what you're doing now and and everything that's happening with Share Strength and No Kid Hungry. So stay with us. This is Only in Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Take a sip
1: from your. And my hand to you. Think about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass long-chain omega-3s and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood. Wild, natural and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com I
3: know it will get easier over time. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Jenny Dirksen. She is the National Director of Culinary of Chef and Culinary Professional Relations for Share of Strength and No Kid Hungry. Uh, and, yeah, we were during the break talking a little about our history at Taste of the Nation back when it was at Rosalind Ballroom. So crazy. Um so so you joined in 2010. Now, eight years later, your your role has shifted a bit.
2: Yes. You want to talk a little when about I that? When I came in, I was uh, running the New York City events, so that included Taste of the Nation and also two dinners, one of which was a dinner I managed for Share Our Strength on the USHG side when I was working for Danny, other than being married to my husband, it's the thing I've done longest, or maybe it actually exceeds that now. Um, (laughs) But uh, um, so I came in to run New York events. um, And then we had a few restructures, became Northeastern events. And then I I co-ran the department with a colleague where she was focused on back-end things. And I was more out at the events, restructured again. I ran all of it. Uh, but the, the, my most recent move was about two years ago. One thing I had had on my mind is that we have so many different folks at the organization who interact with the culinary industry in different ways. But there was no one person or department responsible for tracking everything just so we would, you know, one person could always know what was happening. Um, and so I, I lobbied. For that. Um, I'm now on our communications team. Um, I have a team of two. There's two of us. And we work with the 20 some odd event managers um, that, that produce all the Taste of the Nation events, all of the dinners, um, the team behind Chef Cycle and Dine Out. And I can tell you more about all of those platforms. But we work with them to make sure that our exchanges with chefs and culinary professionals aren't just transactional. I don't just want you at the event. Of course, I want you at the event. But I'd also love your great thinking and your feedback. And I want to know where you want to raise your voice outside of the event. I want to know what other areas are interesting to you and what we can do to help deepen those areas for you and give you even more than just that warm, fuzzy feeling. It should be the warm, fuzzy feeling, but there should be a very distinct business benefit to these charitable relationships. And then also it's another way to measure success there's something that you've done beyond your own business that again to your earlier point is impacting so many folks around you i want people to feel fantastic about that and we want to be the catalyst that gets them there
3: right well you do incredible work i mean really and why why don't you talk a little about
2: all the different initiatives and platforms yeah. you have. So um, we, Share Our Strength has been around since 1984. Um, Billy Shore and his sister Debbie Shore founded it on this idea that everyone has the strength to share. Um, but in 2010, they decided to really focus in on domestic childhood hunger as something... You know, kids aren't hungry in this country because we lack food. We lack access. Um, So the No Kid Hungry campaign is is really the biggest effort that the organization makes right now, and that's what I work on. Um, Our mission is really simple. Make sure every kid in the U.S. has the food they need to grow up strong. There's just a huge gap in this country between the kids who have enough food to eat every day and those that don't. So our job is to make sure that kids get there no matter where they live or where they go to school or what time of year it is. You know, we're coming on summer here, summer break. My kids just ended school. Summer is the hungriest time of year for a kid um, who, you know, may not have that safety net of school meals to play in. So we're there trying to fill in all of those gaps. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, And so just to fully answer part of how we fundraise, right, because the biggest part of this really is there's fundraising and there's the actual legislative pieces. On the fundraising side, there's Taste of the Nation, which you know so well. Um, That event has been around 30 years. It really was one of the first tasting-style events. Uh, We still have 20... 20 some out of those across the country. Then we have no kid hungry dinners. We have a few that are large-scale gala dinners where we have honorees. For example, Nancy Silverton was our honoree last year in Los Angeles. But we have even more um, events that are that bubble up within restaurants. A restaurant will just want to do something. um, And so they will choose to take on a no-kid hungry dinner. And that's another way that we fundraise. And there's probably another dozen of those that happen across the country. In fact, I think there's one in Seattle um, tomorrow night, I believe. Josh Henderson from Westward hosts that. Then there's uh, Dine Out for No Kid Hungry. That is probably the easiest program for any restaurant to plug into. It is during September or really any time of year, but our big promotion is during September. Figuring out a way that your guests can help contribute funds to No Kid Hungry. There are buyback coupons, percentages, you know, any piece of it, but that ends up being a a big piece thousands of restaurants participate in that. Um, and then most recently, we have Chef Cycle. It's in its fourth year. That is a three-day, 300-mile cycling endurance event. We had nearly 200 riders in Santa Rosa in May, and we're coming back to the East Coast this year. We'll be in Charlottesville, Virginia at the end of September um, with hopefully another 100-odd, I think a little bit more than that, riders as well. So those are, those are all the fundraising engines. Um, but, you know, they're, they're great because it offers people a multitude of ways to right. engage. Right. Well that's perfect for my question from my last
3: guest. Let's let's go to that cuz I had on Alan Shaya episode 181 and he's an award-winning chef and the founder of Pomegranate Hospitality and he recently opened Saba in New Orleans. And he's opening soon Softa in Denver. So he wants to know what type of advice would you give to him to do more community service and make an impact in the community when you're going to a new market. Specifically he's thinking about as he's going into Denver, as he's, you know, he's been he's known in New Orleans, but he's like, yeah, he's
2: entering a new market. So so what advice do you have for him? So interestingly enough, I met Alon at a no kid hungry dinner that Ashley Christensen was hosting at Pool's Diner in Raleigh. This is at least five years ago now. (laughs) Um, And I know Alon to be generous and thoughtful, and I love that he's asking these questions before opening Softa. I really admire businesses that engage with the community even before they open their doors. This is how you introduce yourself to your new neighborhood. And I think when you can do that, through giving something first, you you give what you get, right? You get what you give. Um, so if you give more, you're going to get more back. So I would say, Alon, um, there might be some fundraisers coming up close to Soft as opening. I think also, if, if, I believe they're looking around August or sometime end of summer. I think that's back to school in Colorado. I would say, have you surveyed the local neighborhood to see where the schools are? Find out if they have any fundraisers. That's a great way to introduce yourself. Um, and then, of course... <laughs> (laughs) Share Our Strength has a tremendous presence in Denver through our Cooking Matters campaign. So this is our nutritional education platform Mm -hmm. that inspires and helps families to shop for and prepare meals um, that are healthy and affordable, especially when they're on a tight budget chefs are natural advocates for this work. So uh, we have nearly 50 chefs in the area who help both with fundraising, but who also come in as the culinary instructors for Cooking Matters. And uh, Alon, when you're up and running, we'd love to make some introductions. Excellent.
3: Well, that's great advice. Not surprised. So how do you how do you manage everything you're managing, and how often are you traveling? Because the, there's a lot of events yes, around definitely. the
2: country. Um, I last year I I sort of totaled things up at the end of the year. I I spend an actual 33 percent, a full third of my time is traveling, and that's to our events, but also just to industry gatherings. I think part of how we can do our best to support these chefs and culinary professionals who support us is to really understand what's happening in the industry sometimes to form an opinion around it, sometimes to create an outlet. Um, we didn't create Chef Cycle with the idea that folks who work primarily in kitchens don't get the time they necessarily need to work on their physical health. But what we've heard back from riders, it has changed how they approach, you know, treating their bodies just by training for this ride. So sometimes there's this nice link up where what we're working on really delivers more uh, back to that. So the answer is I work um, primarily through our many event managers. They're the folks on the ground in the different markets who are working with the chefs and culinary professionals every day. Um, I certainly find opportunities for touch points. I might flag for any of them. There's a piece, you know, say something to the chef. Someone had a baby. Someone opened a new restaurant. It was their 10th anniversary, just recognizing what we can. And then the other place that my team really overlaps with chefs is around advocacy. So we do field trips. We take chefs into uh, the markets where we're working. We take them to see breakfast served in a classroom, which is one piece of our our strategy to end childhood hunger. Um, We take them to meet with community leaders to hear about what are the struggles that the families in this community face. And then we also do homerooms, where we train them in the nuts and bolts of why childhood hunger exists here and what to do about it. Right now, we're incredibly Farm Bill focused. Um, And we've even managed about five trips to Capitol Hill the past four years to bring them to meet with their representatives and really make their voices known. Amazing. Wow, you've covered so much. I love it.
3: And just uh, I was going to do it at the end of the show, but we should give a shout out to your website. It's uh, nokidhungry.org? Yes. Okay, so people can go there go and there. find out more information about all these, all these programs, platforms, initiatives. It's like a lot going on. Yes. Okay, so we're going to take another break and come back. We're going to play my speed round game and talk some industry news. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network.
0: Hey, this is Michael Harlan Turkel from the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I've been with the station for over eight years, 350 shows, and it is the most consistent thing in my life. Every Tuesday at three, I know to be here in studio, but I also get the, the privilege of meeting such amazing people, artists, artisans within the industry. Get to learn a new factoid, a, a new way of life from these wonderful people. And I hope you do too by listening and that you donate to our summer drive. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and click on the beating heart. And we'd even appreciate monthly recurring donations to any show on the network. You could designate to the food scene, the speakeasy, and that many more.
3: And we're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Jenny Dirksen. It's time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I name a couple of things that give you, give you choices. So it's an either or, like chocolate or vanilla, and you pick your preference. Chocolate. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I love chocolate, too. Okay, here we go. Eat in or
2: eat out? Eat in. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Up until a year ago, I was a hardcore martini, three olives to start my meal. (laughs) And then I thought in January, maybe I'd try life without hard liquor. And that's actually been incredibly breezy. So wine. Okay. Good explanation. How about tasting
3: menu or a la carte? A la carte. I can't can't sit that long. Unless it's a very short tasting menu, maybe. Okay, short tasting menu or a la carte. Small plates or large plates?
2: I feel it completely depends on the occasion. I think if it was Friday night after a long week and I wanted, like, steak frites, I, I mean, we always share, but I might want the full thing. But with a big group, I think it's really fun to get a, a bunch of things. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it depends. Okay. Communal table or chef's counter? It also depends. I think when I'm dining alone, a chef's counter is a really fun place to be, a, a place mm-hmm. to focus. But I love restaurants for the community they create. We, My husband and I, I'm killing your speed round. My husband Tell and I that. went to Chez My Tante for our anniversary. And we're like chatting with this table and chatting with that table. And we walked out and he's like, okay, you're right. I do Miss Brooklyn a little bit. It's just so fun. <laughs> so I'll, I'll say again, it depends.
3: Okay, that's a good. I mean, they're good explanations. <laughs> I like hearing them. This one might be tricky.
2: Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Hmm. I'll again say it depends only because, and with a lot of love to all our incredible restaurant supporters in D.C. who are really duking it out, just as we are here, but in, in a different way. Um, it's not that I want all-inclusive I want everyone to thrive. I want everyone to have a wage they can really live on. I know not that's not going to be feasible the way every business is set up. So I guess my answer is I don't know. It my answer is a better way for all. <laughs> it's it's very very nice.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk well, the industry news. We're going to have to talk a little about yeah. this tipping stuff. So so in, in a couple minutes. How about walk around tasting event,
2: events or sit down dinners? Definitely sit down dinners. It's so funny that I ended <laughs> up at big tasting events. I can't walk and eat. I'm not that coordinated. <laughs> Traveling by plane, train, or automobile? Oof. I'm going to say train. Um, I hate being in the air. And if I'm on a train, I mean, this is assuming I'd be the one driving in a car. I love the Amtrak to D.C. for email clearance potential.
3: Well, I recently started working with Eric Brunner-Yang in D.C., and I've taken that Amtrak, and it's fabulous. It is. Yeah, it's, really it's a great wonderful. way to travel. I'm a fan, too. Okay, two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. Manhattan or Brooklyn? Mm. BK. Yeah, all the way. BK all the way. There you go. That's the game. <laughs>
2: It was fun but I then I or, sort of also have to say I'm um, Westchester which is where I live now. So. yeah I
3: should have included that <laughs> and I didn't but yes we'll give a shout out to Westchester <laughs> so oh, cool all right so industry news no there's there was an article in The New York Times San Francisco restaurants can't afford waiters so they're putting diners to work. And uh, this is talking about as rents and labor costs soar in expensive cities and workers move away, restaurants are figuring out how to do without servers. And it's specifically called out Suvla, a Greek restaurant in San Francisco, as an example. And I've, I know the, the owner of that, Charles uh, Billy, Billys, I don't know yeah. if I'm saying his name right, um, Actually, I'm planning to have him on my show at some point, and uh, I've been to his place in San Francisco, and it's it's wonderful. But it, it, he's yeah, he's doing it. It's like it's this fast, fine or fine, casual thing they're calling it, where most of the the work, in a sense, the the diners are doing. You know, you 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 order up front, you you get your silverware, your you get take your number, they bring your food. But the aesthetic of the place is beautiful and. The food and the the service, like everything is also like it's an elevated experience, but you're not being
2: waited on, right? I think it's interesting that it's in San Francisco. I associate that strongly with Oakland. That I, I read that article as I drank my coffee this morning and they called out the location of DOSA that's in Oakland where I've been. Delicious. Uh, but same kind of thing. You you know, pick everything up at the counter. Also, Hawkingbird has a similar setup. Um, But I also think of it as something that's been in Portland, Oregon for a while and even a little bit in Portland, Maine where we go every August. Um, I think we're in a time where... um, it's it's going to take a little bit more to realize your vision, and I think about this kind of counter service as the sort of thing that happened in small towns. If you were just like a little business doing your thing, again, my someday cafe, probably the same thing. So it's interesting that it's moving now. You know, San Francisco, one of the most compelling restaurant cities anywhere. It, you know, and mm-hmm. and with the pricing, it's it's not surprising. It'll be interesting to see how guests receive it.
3: Yeah. I, well, I think he's doing really well. I think you know it comes into like. The minimum wage and all this, like trying to make things work, people don't realize how tight the margins are with restaurants, and uh, and and yeah. Oh, I was oh, I was thinking your cafe needs to be called the someday cafe, by the way, <laughs> if it's not already. <laughs> um, side note, but this also ties into there was actually I don't know what the result is, but this morning there was there was apparently. Um, for this, this the tip credit there was it's a valley right. Yeah, uh, Governor Cuomo's Department of Labor will hold its final public hearing. It was happening this morning, on to examine eliminating the hospitality industry tip credit. And I got this from the NYC Hospitality Alliance their their newsletter. But there was also there was an article yesterday talking about on Eater how Danny Meyer is supporting. Uh, full $15 minimum wage for tip workers. And so there's two people there's two sides of it, and there's I think pros and cons of, of both. But from what I know, eliminating the tip credit, um, small businesses are really concerned because the, again, they can't make ends meet while having to pay the full full minimum wage, which is going up. Um, I hope I'm explaining this, you know, with good, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's very ba- I mean, it's
2: basically for anyone who may not be steeped in this right now. It's ensuring that whether you receive a tip or not, uh, the request here on that letter that Danny signed, and you know, Amanda Cohen, who does a lot with us signed that as well, of dirt candy, uh, they're saying, they still need the same minimum wage everyone else is receiving, they still need to move up to 15. Right now, it's set to go up to 10 at the end of this year. And absolutely. It places a tremendous stress on the business. Um, I think, you know, for those of us who have backgrounds or or still work in fine dining, it's hard to wrap your mind around when you think about um, servers working at diners across the state um, who maybe don't make great tips. If they make any at all, this would be a huge difference in their lives. So in a way, it's thinking of the group as a whole. Um, And then, you know, it also, for me, plays into the conversation. It's the same conversation we have about um, even buying just food itself, like the actual product not prepared. We probably pay less for our food than we should, um, really, to make everything work. And so maybe that will be another outcome is restaurants will have to think about raising prices.
3: Yeah, and it's interesting with the the you know Danny went no tipping, and some people I know Amanda's restaurant she's been doing that actually longer, yes. um, but it's 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 a perception thing I I find when dining at a restaurant that's no tipping when you go in and you see see the cost of of what a burger is compared to without having that price of no tip factored in you realize in the end that you're really
2: maybe paying less or the same. Yeah, but I think if, if, you're a, if you're a solid 20% tipper, yeah. and I am up sometimes north, often north of that, um, same thing. You know, the I think the first time I sat down at Union Square Cafe after they made the change and they were in the new space, it was a little sticker shocky looking at the menu, but then the bill comes and you realize that's it. And you're like, oh, yeah, that was a wash. Yeah, no, true. So
3: I don't know, all this to be continued and it will be interesting. I think we you know, what the, the model, I I think years ago, everyone was saying like they would want to be the Chipotle of something. And now this article is saying they, they want to be the Subla of something (laughs) or the, the sweet green or the, you know, all these brands that are doing great, great things in the restaurant industry, but it's a more casual approach. So we'll see if we get more of
2: that. I mean, we're certainly getting more, Like, all-day cafes, I think, have become a thing. (laughs) Absolutely, I think, you know, the the restaurant industry, maybe more so than other industries, is really forced to adapt quickly to how people want to live their lives. Um, And so I expect, you know, you'll see a lot of innovation ahead. Yeah. So stay tuned and stay with us. We're
3: going to take one more break. We're going to come back. I'm going to do my solo dining experience, and then we'll have the final question. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. This week, it's at Oxo Moco. Here's the rundown. The location, 128 Greenpoint Avenue, Greenpoint, Brooklyn. The concept, wood-fired Mexican cuisine in a sun-drenched space. The chef and partner, Justin Basterich. The chef de cuisine is Matt Conroy. And the bar program is by Eben Clem? Climb? I think it's Clem. Why did I go? Because I'm a fan of Justin's other restaurant and him. He is he has Speedy Romeo, if you've never been. It's an awesome pizza place. And uh, this one, this New Mexican place, sounded really great. So my experience. I went as a walk-in. I went in early because I knew it was going to be busy. It's it's a popular new on the, on the heat map list uh, type of place. So I went in. I sat at the bar. I was really well taken care of. I ran into even... Eben Freeman who then I was who was helping with the bar program so there's like two Eben's involved in this <laughs> I was I, it took a moment I was like because it's an unusual name and they're both in the bar world and they're both working on this restaurant so anyways it was cool to see him I saw Justin as I was leaving too and he actually just had a baby which uh, was the timing of opening a restaurant always
2: falls into. No there is something that happens <laughs> where chefs who are about to open a restaurant and are also having a kid somehow this always crosses over where it happens at nearly yes. the same time. There's like a magnetism.
3: Yeah, it was like this it was like a day before he opened. So and he's doing great and the baby's doing great. And the space is just beautiful. I'll get to that in a minute. And when I was leaving, I, I ran into I know their their PR team and they had this whole group of of Instagram influencers outside taking lots of photos. So I ended up seeing lots of people I knew. Um, and had a good time. So, what did I get? I had the soya marinated tuna tostada with avocado, salsa, matcha, and radish. And I had lamb barbacoa taco with salsa de picha, watercress, and squash blossom. My take... Loved them both. The tuna tostada, especially, was um, I mean, it was beautifully presented. I saw in an article that it was kind of inspired by uh, Contramar in Mexico City, which I'd recently been to and had their t- uh, tuna tostada, which is excellent. But this is this was it's a really it's a really great dish. And the lamb taco was was very tasty, so I enjoyed it. The ambiance, it's light and bright and beautiful, and they have this amazing patio up front, and it's like nothing nothing I've seen in New York. Just the style. It's really cool. Um, so you should get out to Greenpoint and see it. Uh, it's perfect for solo dining at the bar. I'd say dinner with friends or even date night. Interesting tidbit. The restaurant is named after the Aztec goddess of the night. Personal fun fact. So when I was in Mexico city, um, I, I went on this amazing culinary tour, uh, by quest Mexico tours that my friend Anne McBride, uh, Hooked us up with, and we went in the morning. We had lamb barbacoa up in the mountains outside Mexico City, and it was fantastic. So it was really cool. I now have that memory, and it's able. To, it's great to be able to get this food in New York. So uh, the cost was thirty-seven dollars. That's not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, I would. And the website is oxomocoNYC.com.
2: Wow, sounds yum.
3: It was really good. It's a cool. It's a very cool spot. So um, yeah, check it check it out if you're out for Mexican cuisine okay so it's time for the final question so my next guest is Florence Fabricant she is the food and wine writer for the New York Times I mean um, she's a legend do I I'm like do I need to give her an <laughs> intro you know Flo Fab we love her she's amazing she is she's a legend so she's coming on my show and Jenny I would like to know what, what should I ask her
2: I will admit that when I saw Florence Fabricant would be the next guest, I got a little shaky, excited. Um, and I called in some recruits to help me think through the question, and we all went to the same place. So I, I'd like to think this is a good question uh, of the moment for Florence. Florence, you are the undisputed dean of restaurant reporting um, and have been for as long as I've been following restaurants, which is not a small amount of time now, I'll say. In a day and age, where the internet often eschews journalistic principles in favor of reporting rumors or hearsay, how have you still managed to keep your integrity and remain so relevant?
3: I'll just kick off the show with that. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to hear how she answers it, but it's true. Yeah, how has she done it? She's incredible. She is. So, And so are you. You're incredible.
2: Oh, right back at you. Yeah. (laughs) No,
3: thank you so much. I've... I, I wish I wish I I wish we had a longer show so I could get all of the stories of your background. I might get that now over some pizza at Roberta's. Absolutely. Um but yeah, really incredible career and I love that you have that culinary background because yeah, it, it ties into a, to working on what you're working on now and if you if you open that cafe, I'm I'm there. It's you
2: know what? It's uh it's the greatest industry. It really is. The best people. It's such a pleasure to be a part of it. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. So, my guest
3: today has been Jenny Dirksen. She is the National Director of Chef and Culinary Professional Relations for Share of Strength and No Kid Hungry. Their website's nokidhungry.org. You can follow her at jen Dirksen at No Kid Hungry. I'm at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My website's BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. Reminder, all of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. And it's our annual summer drive happening here at Heritage Radio. Please, uh, you can go to our website. Again, it's HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And backslash donate is where you can become a member and get involved. And we would love to have your support. It keeps us on the air. So, um... Thanks thanks in advance. Thanks again to Jenny. Thanks to her daughter Beatrice, who's been here today with Beatrice, us. Beatrice,
2: who is nearly seven, has sat in complete silence this entire time. She's watching the staff of Roberta's have their family meal.
3: <laughs> She's been a wonderful person having the studio with us. So thank you for coming. And thanks to my engineer today, Vitor. So next week it's uh, 4th of July. So happy early holiday. Uh, we're not doing a show on Wednesday on the 4th so I'm going to be back on the 11th that's July 11th at 4pm my guest is Florence Fabricant I hope you'll tune in then till then uh, be well and thanks for being part of all the industry bye